0: Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Morgan, host of the uh, 2023 Alzheimer's World Summit. And it's my great pleasure to have with me here today, Dr. Uh, Matthew Pratt-Hyatt, who who received his PhD in cellular and molecular biology at the University of Michigan. And he's really focused on assisting with the diagnosis and treatment of mitochondrial disorders that we'll talk about a bit, very interesting neurological diseases, chronic immune diseases, and more, and he specializes in developing tools that examine factors at the interface between genetics and toxicology, and his work is bringing new insight into how genes and toxicants interact and how that interaction may lead to mental health disorders, chronic health issues, and metabolism uh, uh, disorders. So, Matt, welcome to this. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Well, that is a lot in that introduction, it which is. is really, really interesting in terms of the mechanics of molecular biology, mechanics and all that. And I just wonder if we could start. Um, I I like to ask you kind of like, how did you get started into this area of inquiry, which is fairly technical and heady. So I'm just curious what led you into this area?
1: Yeah, so I was in academia and um, working in toxicology and developing tests to like measure different toxicants in urine and both um humans as well as in rodents because rodents was our model organism um i got contacted to try to like develop a urine test for doing um developing um, environmental pollutants in humans yeah no i can that sounds interesting i can do that so i moved from academia to industry um i and then um, a couple of years after developing that test, I started having doctors ask me about developing a test for mold toxins, which are called right. mycotoxins. And I was like, "Well, yeah, no, I, I, I mean, looking at the literature, and I, I can do that." And so I spent about a year and a half developing that test, and I really started going the rabbit hole after that of of how much mold and mycotoxins are affecting the health of everyday individuals I really was expecting it to be kind of like a niche like test that maybe like a handful of doctors would utilize and maybe like be effect- important for a handful of patients. but after like looking at thousands of patients the numbers were astounding to me of how many were actually being affected and their symptoms were actually related to that that exposure.
0: And, you know, I have to ask as a follow, it's a little off point from our questions, but when you talk about those microtoxins, like how do the mold, how does that get in the body? And then how yeah. does that get passed out? That's obviously like a smoking gun. I'm just curious how it, how it ends up in the body in the first place.
1: That's a great question. There's really three different r- routes, um, either like ingestion or inhalation are the first two. So um, you're breathing in the toxins while you're like low. In your home or in your workplace or at a school or you like it, there is small amounts of micro mycotox- mycotoxins in the um food supply i mean like probably like one one hundredth of what we're getting uh-huh. what a typical person's being exposed to in a home but i mean it's it is measurable And then third um, is through skin absorption. These toxins are um, easily absorbed through the skin. So you can be, um, you can get exposure that way.
0: And it's interesting. uh, And again, a little aside here being a cranial sacral fan as I am, when you think about the way we smell, you know, inhalation, uh, there's a thing called the cribriform plate. You know, it's right here at the structure between the forehead and the nasal bone and those molecules get a straight shot right into the brain. And so I'm wondering is there any evidence to show that mold exposure uh affects brain function in any way?
1: Oh yeah, I mean a lot. I mean a lot of these my mycotoxins cause a lot of different um mental health issues. Um the toxins of, uh, the the toxins cause a uh, myelin um Depletion in both the brain as well as in the periphery nervous system. Um, the mitochondria in brain cells become affected, so they can't like produce like energy as well as they should. Um, and lastly, the enzymes that metabolize neurotransmitters get affected. Um, a lot of them get in- inhibited by these mold toxins, so you get like surplus, like buildups of certain. Uh, neurotransmitters which can like lead to like depression and anxiety.
0: Oh so in a sense there's a hormonal or neurological imbalance as well.
1: Yes. Because of the buildup. Yep.
0: Is it perhaps the brain's trying to defend itself and it creates some imbalance for the neurotransmitters and doing that it sounds like
1: not as much. I mean more the the cytochrome P450s which do a lot of the like metabolism of the cytochrome of the neurotransmitters they yeah. get inhibited. So, uh, while they're getting inhibited, they can't, uh, they can't like degrade the, the neurotransmitter. So they stick around right. a lot longer than they're supposed to.
0: Right. And that causes a clog up. There's like a neurological imbalance basically. Exactly. Because of that. Wow. Well, that's interesting. Cause I'm just thinking, you know, cognitively, could that affect memory in some way as well because of that?
1: Oh, the, I mean, the, I, uh, I mean, definitely the first two parts of the like demyelination and the, um, the cells like not having like producing enough ATP. I mean, you get a lot of patients that have memory issues that have been exposed to mold toxins. It's a pretty, like, it's probably one of those like three most common symptoms that we see behind like fatigue and like, um, gut issues.
0: Uh, so what are those three again, just to clarify?
1: Uh, the most common is fatigue. Second is gut. And third is like um, mental mental issues, uh, memory, um, motor neuron issues or headaches.
0: Well, and so, and, so, and because as we, we speak a lot about in the summit and elsewhere, the gut and the brain are very interconnected. It's interesting, it shows up as the mold, you know, doing that like that.
1: Exactly. So yeah. I mean, yeah, you can have the brain getting affected both ways. Cause you have like the microbiota and the gut is being affected, um, which then like leads to a lot of like improper signals, either through toxins or other like signals getting sent to the brain. So yeah, I mean, that's definitely affecting things as well.
0: And then, you know, as we said in your introduction, just because I'm curious, uh, what's the relationship between genetics and toxicology? That piece. Well, I,
1: mean, I mean, it's huge. I mean, in order for all of us to detoxify, there's a very vast and complex system for all the like toxins that we're exposed to on a daily basis. And one of the most common things to detoxify, not just mold toxins, but a lot of our other toxins, is a compound called glutathione. Right. And there's like a handful of genes in that pathway of producing glutathione that can like cause uh um in just like an inadequate source of glutathione in the system. So you see that like some patients are more susceptible to mold toxins than others. Mm-hmm. Those are kind of like our canaries in the cold mine. Yeah, um, yeah it's really like, it's problematic when I'm consulting with a family where like either like the husband or the wife is symptomatic, and the rest of the family isn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, and a lot of that is because of genetics is because um, one fam one family member produces a decent amount of glutathione where the other one doesn't. So they can't detoxify as well.
0: Wow. So in a sense, it's a little bit like a genetic insufficiency. If there's something that's not quite there and there's a deficit, when there's more, that already sets people up to fail. I guess you could say a lot more. Yeah. I mean,
1: it's definitely like genetic as well as environment. I mean, if somebody doesn't like take the vitamins that they need or is, is like low on salt, like on sulfur containing foods, I mean, there's definitely like other like factors that can play a part in it as well. It's not completely genetics.
0: Well, and it's just interesting you bring in that angle because I think that most people that talk about mold exposure may not understand there's a difference in your genetic proclivity that can also affect the outcomes. So that's just an interesting thing to be aware of. That's very interesting. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then, what are some besides that? Uh, are there other symptoms of mold exposures? You've, you know, covered some of the key ones here. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's,
1: it's, that's one of the difficult things about mold is that it affects people so differently. And there's just so many different symptoms that you get, depending on the environment and the genetic makeup of the patient, especially, and also like what toxins are being exposed to. Cause we like talk about mycotoxins as like a big, like all encompassing thing, but like, we're really like talking about probably like 12 different, 12 to 15 different toxins that are the most common. And all of them have like somewhat a I mean, similar properties, but also different. So oh, yeah. like some patients are going to have like hormonal, like, like. The, well, first let's hit the th- the three again, um, gut, uh, fatigue, and like uh, memory, mo- motor functions. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are like the three big ones, but then you have right. like hormonal issues. You get a lot of patients that, cause some of these mold toxins affect, um, like either, um, like the estrogen, um, pathway or can like attack, um, the thyroid. So you get a lot of like patients that like develop like hypothyroid like symptoms, or you get like patients that develop like Hashimoto's like symptoms. Um, you get patients that have rashes, you get patients that become like, um, polar reactive to things. So it like affects like the histamine response. Huh, so, huh, so you huh. get like patients that develop a lot of like um, autoimmunity type things such as like lupus or um, other like autoimmune problems.
0: Well, wow, that's quite a palate. That's a range. And
1: it is. And it's scary. And it also makes it hard to uh, diagnose because you're trying to like treat a patient and they look like these other diseases that they're not really, and you try, try to treat them for like you would those other diseases, but doesn't really like work very well because um, the underlying cause is really the mold.
0: And I have to ask about the toxins just in terms of defining our terms. So how would you define a toxin just so we all know what you're talking about? Because you're saying there's a variety of those.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, a toxin is anything. I mean, well, So it's always hard to like define a toxin because like there was a Swiss uh, physician back in the like 1600s and he was Paracelsus and his like common phrase was uh, the dose makes the the poison. So Uh anything can be a toxin depending on the dose. I mean, what really I'm like referring to as toxins is like things that are in like parts per billion, but can cause deratilious effects
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the body. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So it's also a function of, you know, how much there is. Like, we talk about COVID, we know, we talk about, you know, the number of exposures and concentrations. So, got kind of that same idea right if you exactly
1: do. and so yeah when i'm talking to like by uh, talking to practitioners especially ones that are new in this field they're like well uh, i see that my patient all my patients have microtoxins like well i don't really worry about whether or not they have microtoxins or not it's always about how the abundance and also yeah. like the abundance versus symptoms Is right like you have to like if the patient has a lot of microtoxins but not a lot of symptoms you have to like, or vice versa, you have to like, try to like go, go through that paradigm as well.
0: Ah. And in a practical sense, then how do you test for mold exposure clinically? How do you go about doing that?
1: Well, the first step is always like, try to like identify if the patient's like a good candidate for mold toxins. Like they exhibit some of those symptoms that we talked about earlier. Right. And then like the second one is, is like collecting a urine sample and then sending it to our lab. And then we will like give like a report showing the parts per billion amount in that sample of how much microtoxins it is.
0: So it sounds like even though it's not totally exciting to talk about urine samples, but it's almost as if what the body secretes, it's shedding and showing like a smoking gun a little bit about how many parts there are, Per million or billion or or whatever you have parts
1: per, yeah, generally parts per billion is what we're doing here. And yeah, I mean that's the important. I mean, that's in most patients, it's they have to be in the parts per billion to actually be exhibiting symptoms. Um one thing that I do like recommend is to provocate, kind of like you would for if you were like doing like a like a heavy metals test. Uh Uh-huh. because somebody's like about 10 to 15 percent of our patients are really poor excretors and all we can measure is the toxins that are coming out of the body. Uh, uh-huh. so I generally like recommend like doing like, um uh, 250, uh, milligrams of like glutathione per day uh-huh. for like five days and then collect on the sick, the morning of the sixth day. That's generally my personal like provocation, um, protocol. Um, I try not, some practitioners will rec- do more than that. I generally shy away from that because a lot of the patients especially the ones that are really poor excretors will then start like the toxins become mobilized in the body and then it's like they start becoming symptomatic so all these toxins yeah. are becoming mobilized yeah they don't excrete very like they're like they don't produce a lot of um, bile acids or they have like really like active bile acid transporters. So yeah. it's like pulling the toxins out of the gut back into the system. So I, I try to do a small amount, but even then the caveat is if they start like, let's say two or three days into it, they start becoming symptomatic. I generally like recommend just like stopping the provocation and then collecting right away after that. Cause right. generally those, most of those patients are going to show, what we're looking for
0: and no one likes to be told they're a poor excreter so (laughs) you recommend ways to get things moving so you can get a sample
1: yeah and i hate like i'll do a with like with some practitioners and they're like "Oh, i'm sure this patient has mold in their system they found it in our house yeah they're like symptoms match the pro profile and they're like i'm looking at i'm like oh these results don't look that terribly exciting um did they provocate and the practitioner like oh no they didn't take anything prior to that I'm Yeah, like, oh, let's, yeah let's, I mean I hate to like have them retest cuz I really hate right. the, I mean I don't want to like have the patient like spend more money than they have to sure um sure. I'll like, say oh let's try this provocation method and yeah. then um test again right and um I would say like almost like 80% of the time we get uh, uh right elevation in those cases. And then like even for patients that do provocate, I generally recommend doing like a follow-up of three months. Like 60% of those patients are higher on their three month time point than what we do at the initial value, just because they the the treatments improve excretion.
0: And I just I just want to presence to people appreciating that you know when people talk about mold and mold toxing what you're doing is providing a background. You're understanding genetics, molecular biology, cellular biology, how all these interplay. So there's a lot of details that make sense in terms of how sophisticated this is. So I just, I think that's fascinating that you have focus in that area and seeing all the mechanisms down to the molecular and even genetic level. Um, I also wanted to ask now, besides testing in the body, is there a way that you provide an insight into testing for it in the home as well or is that yes, part we what do, you do? Yeah, yeah that's
1: a great question because really to get anybody like completely well you really need to like make sure that they have a safe environment yeah so we actually provide right. like two different tests for the home one is a mold spore test which we call the fungal dx which like mm-hmm. tests for like 13 different molds in the environment like the most common ones. And then the other one is our environmental mycotoxin test, which looks for the mold toxins inside the home. That one looks for like 16 different mold toxins inside the home. And we combine right. those together in a in a combo test that we call the EMMA.
0: Now, I know that you're focused on the testing and I can see that's a so passion of what you do. Um, do you also have recommendations for how people can be treated once you find out there's significant mold exposure in the body?
1: That's a great question. We really try not to, we try to shy away from like providing like treatment protocols. That's the reason why we have our practitioner finder on our website so that we can like combine people or like refer them to like practitioners in their area that can like give them like the attention that they need in order to, um, get better now for practitioners that are new in the field we do offer our like training like we we have our like our webinars and then we have our like workshops that we have like right like scattered throughout the year to like help uh, practitioners learn how to manage these type of patients
0: yeah because you can see that's fairly technical perhaps even for an md to understand all the markers and the bifurcations, you know, how they manifest the different symptoms. So that's that's extremely valuable. It's, it's kind hard. of a technical it, area, right? It
1: is, it is very hard and very technical. And yeah. it, one thing that we're really trying to like figure out is like not every like protocol works on every patient. Like not there, there's not yeah. a protocol out there that works on every patient. So right. trying to figure out like which protocols work best for which type of patients is still something that I think our field is working on. It's something that. I'm very interested in is like, yeah. like, cause my like real passion is personalized medicine. Sure. Trying to like, okay, get a treatment plan for each individual. That's like personalized for them. Exactly. Well, so not just for like mold, but for like other like chronic illnesses as well. Uh, is that something I think on our website where we share
0: information, if people can get a little bit of a resource on the practitioner finder that might be valuable as well. I think, right? So yes, yep, you can provide that. That's great. That's great. Um, and then, what do people find when they do have the benefit of treatment? Are there any uh, particular uh, results people might achieve as they get treatment for addressing this? I assume it is addressable, right? Oh
1: yeah, no, totally. And I
0: yeah,
1: I mean, part part of like. Probably the the best part of my job, which makes it makes my job easier from day to day, is talking to either patients or their parents and seeing like how like they got better. Like I was just talking to a pay a parent last week' um he's like saying that like like two years ago, his daughter had like severe alopecia. And hmm. um, they couldn't figure out what was going on. They went through lots of different rabbit holes and couldn't get it down. And they like came across mold, mold toxins, and they hmm. did um, a test that um, I had developed and discovered that their daughter had mold toxins. They got and they then like figured out that they had mold in her room. So they got that remedied. then they like treated her. and now she's like completely um, asymptomatic now. So wow.
0: So even showing up on the skin or disruption, it was helping death.
1: To... Yeah. Skin, yeah. hair loss. I mean, yeah, I mean, definitely. Um
0: Well, look at me. I should. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, uh, right, right, right. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, I, I would say it's like at least like once a month, I talked to somebody that, like. Uh, uh I mean, I was just in London. I was talking to somebody that just started, they just started a mold remediation company because they were like, because of their like, because of his um um, experience nice. mold and then say like hey I like took your test like five years ago and it, it saved my life wow so I I yeah I, I talked to patients all the time patients that were like in, like bedridden like they couldn't get out of bed because of the severe to- toxic effects that the molds have on mitochondria um, or on yeah. mental health people that were like losing their memory um yeah i mean it's really beneficial i i really uh, and that's i if if, i will never turn down a phone call from somebody that wants to (laughs) tell me that um how how they've gotten better Uh, those are my favorite phone calls absolutely
0: and finally you know what's your vision for the next five years in terms of studies and help for the general population i'm just curious kind of yeah, so like, I mean that's
1: really like I mean we got a good idea of how to like identify like what patients are like having like mold issues, but like there's like all these other like illnesses that are like tangent or tangents to like mold problems, like the gut mm-hmm. or um the nervous system or like other like things that like so just developing other tests to help practitioners like figure out what things they need to do to like what other treatments besides getting rid of the mold do they need to do to like get the them right. better. So that's what I'm currently doing is like trying to like get a nice portfolio of tests so we can like give each patient the treatment that they need and not more treatment than they need. Because I don't want them to like have to like undergo things that they don't need, uh, but I want to like be able to like say like, okay, these are the things that are really going to help you.
0: Wow. That's just terrific. Dr. Matt, you know, what I want to really acknowledge you for is looking at the science, the deep science and platforms underlying this and translating that into something that's very practical in terms of the individual and the home and then what they can do about it. Because not everyone can make that transition of being a scientist to to having a practical applications and training people. So that's, I think that's really wonderful, the resource um, that you're providing.
1: Um, I hope so. I mean, I just really want to help people. I and mean, that's what really drives me from day to day.
0: And that's exactly, Dr. Upledger, my mentor in cranial sacral, that's exactly what he said. We want to help people. It's exactly the same philosophy. So Dr. Matt, thank you so much for uh,
1: for joining us today. I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks.